Before we start today's interview, I'd like to talk a little bit about a conference that's coming up in March in Melbourne, Australia. It's called CG Futures and it's a fantastic event. The conference features highly skilled and internationally renowned 2D and 3D artists from the gaming, visual effects and animation industry. It has talks, presentations, workshops and demos and fantastic access for one-on-one conversations with the artists. I recommend it for both students and industry professionals who really want to have a look at how things are developed at the elite level. The event runs from Friday the 2nd of March through to Sunday the 4th of March. I attended the event last year and was blown away by the quality of the presentations. This is fantastic value for money and something you can't get online. To find out more, go to cgfutures.com. All right, now let's get into the show. Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today I'll be having a conversation with Grant Freckleton. Grant started his career back in 1998 as a junior working at Animal Logic in the design department creating television commercials. As Animal Logic moved into feature films, Grant worked as a concept illustration artist and a matte painter on movies such as Moulin Rouge, The Matrix Reloaded and Happy Feet 2. His big break came seven years into his career when he got to work on the movie 300 as a visual effects art director. After the success of 300, he went on to work on many other films as an art director and a supervisor. Those films included Legends of the Guardians, Lego Movie and Lego Batman. Grant has won multiple awards over the years and is well respected as an art director in the visual effects industry. Today I'll be talking to Grant over the internet from my office in Melbourne to the Animal Logic Studios in Sydney. So bear with us if the sound's not perfect. All right, Grant, thanks very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today. No worries, it's a, it's a pleasure being here. What is it like working in Animal Logic? How do the studios in Sydney, Vancouver and LA compare and set up? Animal Logic, you said, has got three offices, one in uh, Sydney, one in LA and uh, one in Vancouver. And the Sydney office has been here the longest, more than 25 years, focusing on uh, animation and visual effects. Each office shares the same basic pipeline. Uh, Vancouver is focused uh, 100% on um, the Lego movies. So Vancouver is is using the pipeline that we set up for um, the Lego movies here in Sydney and improving on it. The LA office is there specifically uh, for Animal Logic Entertainment, which is our in-house production company that's starting to create its own content, looking at uh, IP and books and and original uh, uh, concepts uh, for turning into films. And the Sydney office size and setup and pipeline? Size of the Sydney office fluctuates depending on projects. Uh, so we have a certain number of sort of core staff and then above and beyond that, depending on what films you've got in the building and what stage the process they're in, may fluctuate anywhere up to a few hundred people at its smallest up to you know 500 plus when it's full on in production. It'd be great if you could describe the role of an art director. 
what do you do and what's your responsibilities? So as an art director, I sort of do two particular jobs. Part of that is production design and part of that is art direction. Sometimes those roles are interchangeable depending on the project. And every project is different. Um, so depending on the director you're working with, the nature of the story you're telling, et cetera, et cetera, you may be approaching this in different ways. But broadly, an art director is there to ensure that the sort of visual aspects of whatever you're doing, designing a character or building a set or creating a visual effect, the art director is there to be responsible for how that particular effect or character looks, which means you sort of interact at one end with the director of the film or the visual effects supervisor on the film, and at the other end you're interacting with all the various department leads that are responsible for bringing that particular character or set or visual effect to life. So do you usually sit down and draw digitally or just work with teams who draw under your direction? Depending on the project, an art director might sit down and either draw themselves or with a team come up with imagery that helps guide how a particular effect or character or set might need to look. Or it might be a verbal description or it might be as simple as compiling reference. It's entirely uh, dependent on the nature of the project. So could you describe to us the art department, sort of the setup and how it operates? Let's take, say, Lego Batman as an example. Because it was a large feature film, you'd have a core art department. And that core art department, yes, would be based in Animal Logic in Sydney, working sort of directly to myself and the art director, Vivian Toe. And we would also bring in freelance artists from other places. Bringing them in might be bringing them in physically, actually having them fly in from another country and be set up in Sydney or fly in from Brisbane or Melbourne, but it also may involve working with them remotely. So freelancers, some of them work from home and or work from a home office and we would work with them via Skype, et cetera, et cetera. But the bulk of the team is, is based in the office uh, in Sydney. And how do you manage the security of the content when you're working with outside freelancers? Recently, like in the last few years, security has sort of become exponentially more important, you know, with the risks of hacking and so on. So we have particular secure systems that we use that are sanctioned by the studio. So the MPAA and um, the various studios we're working with have officially approved ways of transferring files and communicating that have an extra layer of security. So now I'd like to ask you one of my standard questions. What does it take to get a job at Animal Logic and then thrive? requires uh, talent and the ability to show that you've got that talent, be able to communicate um, what you're good at. So when and how do you employ juniors and what skills do they need to get a job in the art department? These days, like if I'm working on a larger film, you know, something like Lego Batman, I will always want to employ or bring in a, a certain number of people in the team that are coming from little to no experience but show a lot of talent. Uh, so they will come in with portfolios that, that show their artwork. And if, you know, if they come in for a really good portfolio, at least from an art direction standpoint, that's what I'm looking for. And when I say portfolio and when I say communicating, it means that they can not only show that they draw well, but they also show that they can uh, conceptualize and have really interesting ideas and, and different takes on things. And they can communicate that in a succinct way via a portfolio. So what do you prefer in a portfolio? Do you prefer a website or do you prefer a book? Is there any other way of presenting your work? It can be in any form. Obviously, websites these days are an easy way to communicate because you can essentially email and say, you know, this is my art, can you have a look at it? And it's a click away. 
there are different ways of doing it. People might come in with iPads or printed out artwork. The one thing I would recommend to any sort of student is if you're going to a talent scouting thing or you're going to a convention where there are portfolio reviews or whatever, don't put all your art on an iPhone. That's the worst way of showing off your art is like on a tiny screen. You know, you know you're know, better off printing it out or bringing it in on an iPad or on a laptop than showing your great work on a very, very small screen. Could you tell us about the folio that you presented when you were applying for a job at Animal Logic? So in my case, when I started Animal Logic, there was only like 40 people and that was like 19 years ago. The way I got the job was to set up a portfolio that showed that I could draw pictures of aliens and creatures and so on and Lucky enough, at that time, you know, Animology was doing a project that involved aliens and creatures. So now I'd like to move on to software skills. Are software skills important? And what software do you require to know to work in the art department? We don't necessarily look for specific software skills off the bat. If somebody is a really good artist and a really good illustrator or really good at explaining ideas visually, then we have a certain amount of flexibility in terms of what tools they use. So, if, you know, if we're hiring the world's best character designer for a project and they like to draw on a piece of paper or on a drawing board, then, you know, we would set up a drawing board. The most common bits of software or the common types of software that artists tend to use, obviously, are, you know, the, the Adobe suite like Photoshop. And in terms of 3D and Animal Logic, having Maya skills is a bonus, but being able to communicate in 3D or 2D is the most important thing. It's not necessarily which particular piece of software that you're good at. Is there much difference between a junior folio and a mid-level folio? And what would you like to see in a mid-level portfolio? A mid-level is almost the same as a junior level, which is being able to communicate visually. One thing I like personally in portfolios when I see them is not just the final piece of beautiful artwork that's rendered up, but also some of the sketches that led to that final piece of artwork. And some directors these days, particularly in the animation industry, almost value ideas uh, scribbled on thumbnails more than they do a beautifully rendered image. And it depends, again, it depends on the director. So if you've got a portfolio and you've got a full page full of little sketches and then a few pages of um, beautifully rendered work as well, then that actually works to your advantage. It's definitely not a good thing just to throw in completely finished work, um, at least from my standpoint, because you want to understand the way that an artist thinks. How many pages do you think a good folio should have? I mean, for me personally, you don't want to have hundreds of images. You know, 20 pages is probably a good amount, but, you know, it depends on who's reviewing. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about women working in animation. It appears that Animal Logic have a lot of women working in their studios. Could you tell us the split of male-female across the different studios? Across the three studios, there's a different sort of split in terms of Animal Logic in Los Angeles, three-quarters female, one-quarter male at this stage. Vancouver, it's a 50-50 split. And then in Sydney, it's a third to two-thirds. On average, across the different studios, we're starting towards a 50-50 split in terms of um, diversity. Any advice for young female artists? In terms of advice, specifically female artists versus male artists, we give them exactly the same advice, which is, you know, you need to be able to communicate ideas visually. What influenced you growing up and led you towards a career in animation and visual effects? As a kid, I seem to have these sort of short, focused interests in lots of things. And only recently I was sort of looking back going, oh, yeah, that, it makes sense that I'm a production designer and art director, given all of those things. Because, you know, there was a time when I loved buildings and architecture. There was a time where I loved aeroplanes, a time where I was, like, keen in, into bird watching, And I also loved movies. 
that's the amazing thing about being a kid. You can do lots of different stuff. Yeah. Not like when you get older and you just got to do what you can fit in. Is there anything that tied them all together? The thing that all of those interests had in common is I tended to like draw. I'd draw buildings or architecture or I would draw. When I was into birds, I would draw birds. There was a period of time where I was into, like, I really wanted a pair of cool sneakers, so I would draw sneakers. Uh, you know, so I was always drawing these things. And there sort of came a time where, you know, you start to have to make career choices. And I was sort of tossing up between career in science doing zoology or a career in art doing something took advantage of the fact that I could draw. So you love to draw but was there any key influences in that period? And at that time I came across a book called The Book of Alien. I love the movie Aliens. (laughs) Like so many people of my age I watched Aliens like a million times with my brother at home and and thought it was the coolest thing ever. And uh, But there was no book of aliens, but there was a book of alien. I, I wanted to get my head into that universe, and, and that's where I came across Ron Cobb's art and, and Chris Foss and, and Mobius and, and, uh, and Giger, obviously. All, all those artists sort of getting paid to uh, draw pictures without having any kind of... They, they could come up with a spaceship without having any responsibility to figure out how that spaceship might work. Um, and, and that was attractive to me because I liked drawing things, but I wasn't necessarily super keen on figuring out you know, how an aeroplane actually worked or uh, how a building was engineered, etc. I just kind of liked how things looked. These days, surely you've got to make your animations work and make them functional. I was under the impression that you had to make them functional for the animation process. And that's that's what I mean. That was what was super cool about like Ron Cobb's stuff is you know he described himself as a frustrated engineer and you know he, you know the imagery gave the impression that it worked and I think that's ultimately what you got to do is it doesn't have to work it just has to look like it works on the big screen because um, as a production designer you're not responsible with creating reality you're responsible with creating a reality that works within frames of a cinema screen. So it is important to be functional. Yes, you, you do want to think about engineering. You don't, you don't want to just you know, come up with something that doesn't work, but people in the modelling and the rigging department know about working with me. It's, it's an iterative process. I'll usually go to them with a design and then we'll look at it and go, you know what, that actually doesn't work. Created a door frame right next to something and if the door frame opens, it crashes through it. So let's fix that. Um, you know, which is part of the, pr- the process, at least for me, is to sort of iterate and first of all come up with something that looks good and then go away and then figure out how to actually make it work in conjunction with people much smarter than myself. So you obviously started drawing with pencil on paper. When did you make the transition to digital and when did you discover 3D? So there's two steps. One, I, I used to paint and draw a lot on paper. And I couldn't do color that well. Literally, the last three months of my university course, I was introduced to a Wacom tablet and a fractal painter. Um, and I was like, oh, I can paint digitally. And I started painting digitally in the sort of late 90s. And at the same time, I did a short course at Curtin University, which is where I was doing my university course. And when did you start using 3D? I was doing a short course on Alias Wavefront, which was one of the sort of top-notch 3D programs. Uh, on a silicon graphics box and that was sort of where I started working in 3D. I'm not a particularly great 3D artist, no matter where I'm but um, and obviously there are people at Animal Logic that are a million times better. Part of your job as a designer or as somebody in a supervisory role is to know when to, to delegate and to bring people on who are better at it than yourself. It'd be great now if you could briefly describe your career path at Animal Logic. So I started working at Animalogic in 1998, and I was brought on initially as a concept artist for a computer game that never eventuated. And at that stage, there was a design department. There was only like five or six of us in the design department. 
And what was your role in the design department? So I was primarily doing illustration work. Uh, there wasn't enough projects to keep myself busy as an illustrator, um, which meant that, you know, I sort of trained up in the design department doing other jobs as well, anything from video operations work to um, prepping graphics to doing graphic design, et cetera, et cetera. As sort of time went on, I sort of went from doing lots of little jobs on TVC to uh, any time a film would come in that required illustration work, whether it be like The Red Planet, for example, I think was one of them. Um, Moulin Rouge um, was one of the obvious ones I would be brought on to do sort of concept illustration and painting and so on for that. And again, there wasn't a huge amount of work for that, so I also then worked as a map painter. And uh, often those two roles cross over. Concept illustrators often do map painting work and vice versa, which meant that I could do concept illustration at the beginning of the project and do map painting in, in post-production. So you're working in a sort of middleweight position. And when did you make the leap to a more senior role? And that sort of continued on for a few years doing the Matrix Reloaded until 300 came along where um, we were asked to do a development pitch, which meant we were doing something in pre-production. And then I was attached uh, as an art director I'm a visual effects art director on that. And then from 300, you know, I worked directly with the production in America, uh, came back to Sydney, and then it was Legend of the Guardians, and then it sort of, you know, snowballed from there into the world of animation. Cool. So how many years in were you when you made that transition to a more senior role? I started in 1998, and I think 300 was sort of my first senior project, and that was, it was around 2005, 2006. So it was a good seven years um, of working before I got that particular role. Out of all the projects you've worked on, which project do you think you enjoyed the most and had the most interesting experience on? Yeah, all, all the projects are satisfying in their own ways. I mean, certainly 300, just given it was my first production, whereas working with the director directly was exciting and being able to travel overseas was pretty cool. Which projects made you feel proud of your work? Legend of the Guardians was the, I just loved how it turned out visually. So I'm proud of that one. And obviously the Lego movie and the Lego Batman film, I was just, the Lego film in particular in terms of creatively, it was such a hard project and and I felt like I learned so much on it in terms of process that, you know, that that one also stands out as a favourite. And then Lego Batman movie was just fun. What made it so enjoyable? We just had a lot of fun doing design work. What's great is when you work with a director two films in a row, you have that sort of trust that you have from the first film, which is why, you know, The Legend of the Guardian stands out and, and Batman stands out as, as the two most fun projects to work with, work on. So now I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about failure and creative criticism. Yeah. So it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about a failure in a positive way uh, and try and explain the things you've learned from those failures and how it's improved you. Failure is obviously a key factor in success, um, if that's a, a punchy line. Uh, you know, being able to manage how you take failure yourself, I think, is an important thing. And how to take criticism. Probably spent the first eight years, even ten years here at Animalogic, like, getting super defensive if there was some sort of critical feedback in my work that I didn't necessarily agree with. And in reality, critical feedback is a vitally important tool in sort of progressing as an artist and, and coming up, particularly if you're doing something that's meant to be viewed by millions of people around the world. The process of, you know, having your movie test with audiences or hearing what, you know, what a studio executive might think of what you're doing, et cetera, is important. And, and being comfortable with however you deal with that, that is also important. So once you get the creative criticism notes, uh, then what's your process? So my process is to 
hear the notes and just get really grumpy about them for uh, you know a few hours and, <laughs> and then process them and, and then try and filter out the ones that are actually valid with the ones that are maybe uh, just, just one person's subjective opinion. One line that George Miller sort of told the whole crew, which in turn he said Spielberg told him is, you know, you can ignore one person's note, but you, you can't ignore three person's notes at the same time. Or you do it at your own peril, I think was the line, which is to say, you know, the more people you hear a particular thing about, the, the more you've sort of got to take uh, that particular note seriously. So have you got a specific failure, one you could tell us a story about? In terms of failure specifically, there's one project, it was a commercial project that just just went terribly. It was one of these things where you're working, TVCs you work very sort of long hours because you've got to get things out quickly. And, you know, so you're sitting there doing these 20-hour shifts in an inferno suite trying to make something work. Um, And I just remember sort of brought onto a director's call. The director was incredibly grumpy. There was a couple of people that were more senior than me on the call. And what they essentially did was manage that situation and sort of shield you as an artist from that particular failure. And I, I remember walking out of that, A, you know, feeling like I screwed up and being sort of grateful that the people who were in a more senior position than me leapt in front of that bullet uh, <laughs> and took on board that responsibility. That's really cool. What did you take out of that experience? Try and avoid throwing someone else under a bus. If somebody doesn't like the design that you're presenting and you like it, then you either have to stand up for that or take the criticism for it. Don't be like, well, so-and-so did that, and it sucks. As a senior artist, you need to be there and sort of think about the needs of the the crew below you. And that's something that takes ages to learn. And I certainly wouldn't say that I've perfected it by any stretch of the imagination. I think that producers actually did that for me when I was coming up and I didn't even know it. Yeah, I know, and it's and it's an important thing, exactly. And you don't notice. And it was it was in this process where where I had failed the most. So it was probably like the worst project I've ever done. And thankfully, it was short. It'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about the art department, sort of how it functions, sort of how you build up for projects, and how it runs in a production. You try and figure out what things need to be done to get the designs approved and into the asset department, and then you try and hire artists that are good at those particular things. That being said, I tend to hire generalists a lot of the time so that there's not a necessarily a specific character designer and not necessarily a specific set designer. A lot of the artists will do multiple tasks, but you try and ensure that you've got someone on the team that can do character design and you've got someone on the team who can do set design, etc. So Lego Batman, I was the production designer. Um, Vivian Toe was the uh, art director. We had an art department coordinator, Cara Payne, who would be responsible for sort of organising everything. So who's underneath the management and leadership team? People who were essentially credited as digital artists. We had, you know, someone like Tim Pyman who does, you know, good character sketches but also works really, really well in Lego. Uh, so he was doing that particular task. You know, Adam Ryan is a really good Lego builder. Like, he builds amazing Lego models. So he was he was brought on as a Lego specialist. Kristen Anderson was brought on as a set designer. Nadia Attlee was brought on as a graphic artist. But, you know, just because Nadia was a graphic artist didn't mean that she wasn't doing set design and just because... Tim was a good character designer, didn't mean that he wasn't doing graphic art, etc. So everybody would be doing different roles. Leanne Hughes was brought on to do facial expressions for the characters, etc. So you would hire people with different skill sets to fulfill the various things you needed to have happen. Is it a similar structure for most projects? Now, if this film was about um, owls that talk, then you might have a completely different structure to the team. But you generally still have a production designer, an art director and a, um, and a coordinator. 
Gee, it's a big department with a big structure. On a typical day, week, month, how many pieces of illustration will get created in the art department? I just came off of a development project that spread over three months and we, we had a pretty strong team that were very, very fast and we had like over a 1,000 images by the end over three months, so it's like 300 a month. Uh, you could probably do the math and, you know, and it was just an extraordinary output of artwork. So, you know, th- that's kind of in the development phase with a pretty top-notch team. You tend to spread things out a little bit more if you're working over 18 months or 12 months on, a, on an animation thing. So you might, you know, get like five or 10 bits of art a day, depending on the artists. So now I'd like to move on to process. And I want to start off at the start. Could you tell us about how you get the process started working with the director? Roughly speaking, the first stage of anything is to gather reference and to immediately have a sort of take on something, which is to to say, what's your version of what you think this thing is? And your version may not be right, but when you then go into the director, you can kind of then hear what what their brief is and then kind of compare it to what you're thinking and even pitch back an idea. Some directors will want you to basically copy what they're saying and other directors will want you to come in with ideas. And so depending on the director, you, you, you sort of you adjust your process. Could you tell us a little bit about your process for generating ideas? It's not a simple process. It's actually pretty instinctive and probably has a lot to do with how the brain works and so on. My, a lot of my idea process come up through nervous energy. <laughs> like, and did they just spring up if I'm like uh, riffing off of what the director's saying? Then they also come up, you know, in sort of, for lack of a better word, meditative times, i.e. if I'm driving into work for an hour and I'm just, you know, sitting there thinking or I'm having a shower or I'm off walking the dogs or whatever, the ideas kind of like seep to the surface. Do you feel a lot of pressure to come up with good ideas? And does it sometimes feel overwhelming? Part of your job isn't to come up with everything. It's actually to harness all the millions of ideas that the director and the many talented artists you're working with uh, are having and then attempt to sort of apply them to the movie. Once you've got the good ideas together, what do you do next? The process varies depending on what what you're tackling. Um, Say we're doing a piece of character design for a Lego film. Well, First of all, you start with reference. You have a conversation with the artist. What does that conversation entail and how long does it go for? In my case, if it's at the beginning of the project, it might be a long conversation. Um, if it's right when the project is like red hot and you're, and you're trying to solve a million problems a day, it might be, you know, make, make a thing <laughs> and then you run off. Uh, you know, it might be a really quick and succinct brief, but, you know, hopefully at that stage you've got a team that you're working with that is very in tune with what you're asking for. So once you've briefed in the artist, what do you expect to get back in return? And what's the next step of the process? You know, that artist might go away and sketch a bunch of ideas. Then they would show those ideas. I would give direct feedback if I felt like it was completely off brief. Um, I would talk about it, give feedback. If I felt like, you know, it was obviously something worth sharing, then you would then share it with the director. And you'd have director reviews where they would look at, you know, dozens of sketches and respond to the things that they felt were what they wanted. And you essentially iterate from there. And you, where possible, you try and iterate in, in more and more minute detail as you go. So, you know, you might have an overall sketch of a character at the beginning and by the end you're trying to figure out where the mold lines go on a Lego character's hairpiece or what, what the curve of their smile looks like or something like that. So do you often get caught up in the small details? For me as a production designer, I think it's valuable to be able to, one, maintain a big picture view of things, 
but also then be able to zoom in on minute detail where possible. And if you can't do that, that's fine. Hire someone else who is able to focus on that minute detail if you can't. So when you're working on the fine details and things are going wrong or they're completely going in the wrong direction, how do you deal with the artist and make them feel happy about, you know, the creative criticism? Oh, that's that's juicy. Uh, it's juicy. It's very, yeah, it's very emotional and, you know, you're putting a lot of yourself into your artwork, which is why managing people is important and also a thing that over time, you know, you know, I'm learning new techniques and, and so on. And Are those techniques similar to the techniques you'd use to successfully work with a director? But in terms of how to deal with uh, the director specifically and what your relationship is, it's kind of good if you can kind of have some common interests and be able to understand where they're coming from and what they want. So understanding their motives helps you follow their directives? Depending on the directive, not necessarily take what they're saying verbatim, but to try and dig into what underlies what they're saying. So when you get notes in, if a note says, you know, you must do this, depending on the director, some you might just go and do it and everything's fine. They may just be trying to solve a problem. So you have to like figure out what the problem is and try and come up with a solution more so than simply copying their solution, if that makes sense. If you're working with a director that gives a million notes all the time, you have to go away and triage and figure out what of those notes are the things that are important and what are the things that we have to push back on. Do you generally have the director at Animal Logic in person or do you usually do it over video conferencing? And does that require different methods and techniques to understand the director? Um, often because Animal Logic is based in Sydney and a lot of the directors we work with are based in America, yes, you, you do it over video conference and and you have to figure out a way of making those video conferences fun. Uh, particularly in the Lego movies, you know, Chris and Phil are like, oh, we want everything to be fun. Everybody should be having fun on the film. You know, at the same time, you're like getting the, the millionth iteration on something and you're like, you know, <laughs> like tearing your hair out because you feel like you're, you're not getting anywhere. But Jeez, you must get frustrated. Part of what you've got to do is try and shield your team from some of your own frustration and I may be terrible at it or I may be okay at it, I don't know. But that's what you've got to do. You've got to try and get the best out of your crew whilst also sort of talking directly to the director and try and figure out exactly what it is that they're looking for. Did you come up with any methods to make this process a bit smoother? One of the things we did on the Lego movie was sort of stuck on uh, some designs um, that weren't getting anywhere. And there was an analysis that one of the producers and McKay sort of had in terms of what if we were to approach this meeting where we can kind of just goof around for the first 25 minutes and just chat and, and have fun. And then the last 25 minutes, we actually do the hard work. And we, we, we called it mullet meetings because uh, it was like party up front, business down the back, where you could go into a conference call and kind of break the ice and, and just have a chat and get everybody sort of comfortable before you, you know, start going, we need to have this design locked next week or whatever. It's actually like an important lesson in terms of getting people in the mood to um, make decisions is sometimes important, like getting people warmed up and break the ice and not just go in there in a sort of business-like fashion and go, these are the designs we need to get approved. We need them approved next week because that, you know, immediately puts someone in a sort of defensive posture. And I feel like, you know, people are are more creative and more open to ideas uh, now if you sort of talk about them first. So what I'd like to move on to now is your art direction style. Are you on the tools? Are you off the tools? Or do you verbally direct people these days? 
Have the tools. Sounds like sounds like I'm on a drug. The tools are a drug. When are you gonna get <laughs> when are you gonna get off the tools, man? I don't think I'll ever get off the tools. There's this notion of this I think it's a myth that as a supervisor you have to be off box. I don't draw as much as I used to. I don't, definitely don't do concept art as much as I used to, but I do a lot of paint overs or or I'll take a part of my process is to take a piece of concept art and I put like the last twenty five percent over the top. Um, to kind of get it in a color palette or a, or a look that I want. So where do you think there's big benefits in being on the tools and directing? So I'll never be off the box. And certainly when I work with the lighting team, one of the processes of sort of coming up with key lighting or coming up the look of a scene is to work with a lighter. They will sort of work up a look that they like and then I will take all of their lighting passes and sort of rework them to sort of look the way I kind of may wish them to look um, and then give that information back to them directly and also share that with the director in terms of this is the way the, the scene will look. So and I don't think there is value in being completely off box. I would hate to be off box myself and just have to say things verbally because ultimately, you know, communicating visually is, is what we have to do on every level. And if I can communicate an idea visually to someone else on the team, then I think that's more valuable than trying to describe it verbally. So I'd like to now discuss a couple of your projects in detail, starting off with The Legends of the Guardians. So how did you start working on that project and what was your role? So Legend of the Guardians, it happened almost immediately after 300. So 300 was uh, the first project where I was brought on as a visual effects art director across an entire production. And that was working with Zack Snyder. And when that wrapped up, at the same time, Happy Feet also wrapped up. And uh, Simon Whiteley, who was the production designer on, on Legend of the Guardians, had started working with a team creating artwork for what was basically, I, I described it as being like the Narnia movies, but minus the people. Um, so it was kind of a, a sort of photorealistic fantasy film, but, but it just didn't have them to have human characters. And I was brought on essentially to, to start doing illustrations. And at that stage, there was no director attached. So when did the director come on board? Some of the illustrations and imagery that we uh, were creating here in Sydney ended up in Christopher's office at Warner Brothers. And Zach was there, saw all these crazy images of like owl battles <laughs> and uh, animals fighting and got really excited and wanted to be part of the project, which was cool because uh, we had worked together previously. So I, I was then brought on board as um, the art director. So Simon Whiteley was the production designer and I was the art director so what's the difference between the art director and the production designer's roles? Traditionally, the production designer takes all the responsibility for the vision of the film but doesn't necessarily sort of run things day to day, while the art director is responsible for taking a production designer's brief and sort of working with the, the greater crew to actually make that come to life. In the case of Legend of the Guardians, sort of Simon and I sort of split responsibilities like he would work on particular sets or aspects of the film and I would work on particular aspects of the film where I'd be focused on lighting and visual effects and some of the sets and vice versa he would focus on character and some of the other sets and we kind of split the workload that way. The environments in that film were amazing were you trying to make the um, environment match reality? It was a very stylized version of reality and Simon while he was pushing for sort of Tasmania as being a sort of starting point in terms of visual inspiration. But then, we, you know, we mixed Tasmania with uh, redwood forests in America with imagery from great fantasy films like Excalibur and so on. So it was this kind of mishmash of, of different influences. But, yes, based in reality first and foremost. So what was the biggest challenge for you on The Guardians? The biggest challenge with that was, for me, learning how to work in a world of animation, having mostly come from visual effects, and then just the, the sheer 
t- technical complexity of you know not knowing how necessarily to make feathers or these giant sets and, and rendering them in a certain amount of time. There was there was always that sort of you know that process of juggling your vision or the ideas that are in your head with all the technical problems that uh, the various uh, supervisors and artists need to solve in order to make those those ideas come to life. So I'd really like to move on to the Lego movie now. I've been dying to talk to you about this. So tell us a little bit about how you felt when you found out you were going to work on the Lego movie. When I heard about the Lego movie, it came to us as a script and we read it and we're like, this is one of the sort of most complete and funniest and smartest animated film scripts we've read. Um, and that sort of got us excited initially. After the excitement died down, how did you get started? One of the first things we did after reading the script was bring in a whole bunch of Lego toys um, from home. So, you know, there was a great sense of nostalgia and a great sort of love for, for Lego as a medium. There was also a little bit of history at Animal Logic. One of the sort of first people that worked at Animal Logic was a gentleman named Lindsay Flay, who I worked with went way back in the, in the 90s and early 2000s. He created one of the first brick films, which was sort of a primary inspiration for Chris and Phil in terms of how the Lego film would be done. We wanted it to be like a brick film, which is a film made out of Lego bricks. I just want to interrupt you there. Uh, The Lego movie inspired our family, the three of us, me and my two sons, to make our own stop-motion Lego movie. And I think you've inspired another generation of kids to make Lego movies. That's fantastic. I don't know, Chris and Phil, when they sort of, came on board, that's kind of one of the things they wanted to do was to inspire people to make movies. What was your role on Lego Movie and how big a challenge did you think it was going to be? The film had started being developed in Animal Logic for a little while and I was brought on to production design and art direct the film. I have to say when I, when I came on board, I thought it was going to be relatively easy. <laughs> Arrogantly, I was like, oh, you know, this is going to be uh, straightforward because you've got like, you know, the... The Lego company was sort of allowing us to work with, you know, some of their best designers. And I thought, well, Lego bricks are going to be, uh, Lego characters are going to be straightforward. And so, so it's going to be Ascension. It was actually one of the hardest, probably the hardest film that I've worked on. What were the things that made it so hard? Chris and Phil liked to explore ideas and iterate on ideas a lot. So we walked into the project, A, not necessarily entirely sure how we were going to do a photoreal Lego movie uh, in CG, but we're also there sort of attempting to sort of, uh, come up with and solve story problems on the fly and iterate probably a lot more times than we might normally iterate on in a, um, in a sort of standard CG film. How does the iteration process work with the directors and how many versions do you actually do? Chris and Phil are both strong visual stylists and they'll sit down and draw pictures and come up with ideas and then I would be sitting there attempting to sort of interpret those into, into Lego versions. And, you know, it was my first experience having to design characters where you would come up with, you know, more than 300 sketches before you landed on the character design. So, How did that amount compare to, say, Legends of the Guardians? Zach was reasonably sort of straightforward to work with on Legend of the Guardians. We would iterate maybe 10, 20 times on a character design before we would get to a place where we were happy. Um, but A, the nature of Lego and, and B, Chris and Phil's process meant we had you know, hundreds and hundreds of versions, which meant you know, going back to that sort of thumbnail on a uh, post-it note version of designing versus you know, um, having to do elaborate imagery, which we also had to do because we wanted to prove how this film would look rendered out of Lego bricks. So we had to figure out ways of painting, you know, elaborate illustrations that were rendered out of, out of Lego whilst also solving 
character problems and, and story problems in a very sort of fast thumbnail kind of way. That process sounds pretty expansive. On the opposite end of the scale, how did you deal with the limitations of the Lego blocks? Limitations generally are a good thing if you're working in animation in terms of you being able to work within a set of rules and certain style. And, and there were aspects of it that actually were challenging, but there are aspects of the limitations that made it easier. What made it easier? The thing that made it easier was the fact that we had a medium set up um, and ready to go with that had established rules. As long as we built sets that looked like they were made out of Lego and we were using Lego characters and Lego pieces to solve things, then we were sort of working within the style of the film, which is great because some films you have to figure out pre-production what your style is going to be and what your rules are, et cetera, et cetera. Did the limitations create any challenges? The, the flip side of that is, is the challenge was more so figuring out how to, in a 3D world where anything is possible, allow ourselves to work within those Lego rules in a virtual space. So in, in a physical space, you would be forced to work within those rules because the bricks are built in a certain way and so on. Uh, in the virtual space, we had to figure out how to apply those rules. And we were able to do that by working with Lego and using a piece of software they had created called Lego Digital Designer. So the Lego software was good? Was What was the advantages of using it? What's cool about that particular piece of software is it had virtual representations of all the Lego bricks, but it also had an underlying physics engine that had all the rules of Lego bricks already mapped out. So if you imagine the physics engine understood that they, the physics engine had to understand or knew that a star would snap into a tube and it knew that Technic's pieces worked in a certain way and so on. So what that allowed us to do was to create uh, models uh, within this software called Lego Digital Designer and then that would allow us to essentially work with the same rules that we would be working with in real life. And then using uh, further software development, we could then plug that particular piece of software into the rest of our pipeline, which allowed us to work using real-world rules in a virtual environment. Did you have technical limitations? I imagine you would have used a lot of Lego bricks and it probably would have took a lot of time to render this thing. What were the limitations? At the beginning of a project, the two teams of the toughest jobs are um, the art department and the R&D department. R&D has to go away and figure out how to bring uh, some of these crazy images that we're doing to life. So was there many options, you know, with different lengths of time of rendering to build the Lego world and bring it to life? In an ideal world, they would have probably tried to have done it as a stop-motion film with billions of Lego bricks. Everybody knew that wasn't necessarily feasible um, in the time that we had and, you know, the cost of the Lego bricks and so on. So they wanted the audience to not be sure if what they were looking at is real or CG. And what that then meant is we had to render things photorealistically, including lots and lots of reflections and lots and lots of plastic surfaces and so on. So which renderer did you use? Initially, we were working with RenderMan. Uh, and off to the side, uh, Maxiani, who uh, was one of our lighting supervisors, had created his own sort of rendering system uh, for fun on a weekend and what we found that 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 rendering system was sort of much more efficient at rendering reflections and and indirect lighting and so on than RenderMan was at that stage and so we ended up creating a a system for the Lego movie that sort of um, hybridized RenderMan with uh, Max's um, new rendering system which was called Glimpse. And do you think that having the textures like photorealistic and like having them so they look scratched and smashed and do you think that that made it easier from a design point of view or was it a more challenging uh, thing to work with? 
that I am beginning to think photorealism from a design standpoint is definitely a lot easier. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about you have to sort of set a style and a look for the film that, you know, adheres to certain rules, including what things look like texturally and, and how various color palettes work with each other and so on. If the rule is make it look like reality, make it look like a real Lego brick, then from a design standpoint, all you need to do is point at a real Lego brick and say, make it look like that. I think the photo real means that you're getting a much bigger color palette uh, and you're not just using the Lego colors. You know, when the sun shines, it changes the gradient of the yellow across a brick, uh, which looks really cool and more natural. And how did you approach colour on the project? Where possible, we would work within the Lego existing Lego colour palette. However, once it came to lighting the scene, we could use whatever colours we wanted to. And that, that allowed you to, you know, you weren't then purely limited to the colours are only available in a, in a Lego toy set. You are also then able to introduce other colours and other effects through lighting. Cool. All right. I'd like to talk about Lego Batman now. What were the big changes that you made from working on Lego Movie to working on Lego Batman? The difference between the Lego Movie and the Lego Batman Movie is we walked into the Lego Movie not sure how we would do things. And then we were able to walk into the Lego Batman Movie pretty well versed in creating a CG Lego Batman film. So part of the process there is, A, working with Chris McKay as a director. He was um, a co-director on the first Lego movie, sort of now sort of working within his vision for the film, which was slightly different from Chris and Phil's vision for the Lego film. So what was his vision? Uh, He wanted to create a world that was... Uh, the best way to describe it is being infinite in scope. So if you think of it from a story standpoint, we wanted to sort of create a world where Batman, who's this fundamentally lonely figure in the film, we wanted to sort of create a palette or or a world around him that was much, much larger and almost allow us to be able to sort of contrast his size and his sort of loneliness against this huge um, canvas of, you know, an infinitely large Gotham City and a ridiculously large Batcave. So the biggest challenge sort of walking into the Batman movie was dealing with a much larger scope and scale. How did that affect your rendering? We felt like on the Lego movie we had pushed as far as we could using this sort of hybridised approach of having Render Man working in conjunction with glimpse in terms of rendering and we we made the call to switch over from render man to doing everything in glimpse so rendering aside what was your biggest challenge on lego batman now the lego movie had specific story points and part of the charm of it was selling the idea that there was a finite sense of scope and scale because the whole story spoiler alert takes place in a basement um whereas lego batman we wanted it to feel like it was sort of self-contained lego universe that could be anywhere in a child's imagination so that was part of the reason why we wanted to create a larger scope and scale for for the film and that was the biggest challenge was scope and scale and size with a sort of compressed schedule because we only had two years to create it how many people worked on the film it was definitely more than 300 people at the time. I don't have an exact figure, but, you know, it was 300 plus. And how many shots were there in the film? You, you go into a project assuming around 1,500 shots and it was somewhere around 2,000. So it was, it was an extra 500 shots that we had to create. And do you think that's because it was edited like an action movie? It really had sort of an action movie adventure feel. Yeah, it's a cutting. It's definitely came down to the way McKay likes to cut and his cutting style, and he likes things to be fast and dense, visually dense, but also dense in terms of jokes and lines and so on. And so, a film like that ended up being far more shots than we had initially imagined, 
because in editorial, you know, they might take three shot, uh, might take one shot and cut into three shots, and that becomes three shots within our pipeline as opposed to one single shot. What was the public response like? Uh, of Batman in particular? Oh, both the Lego movies. You know, we're both a little bit nervous, but sort of sort of felt like felt pretty confident because we knew we had a pretty good story that, you know, at, at the very least people would find the film interesting. Even if it, no one ever saw it, at least the people that did see it would be like, oh, that was a unique take on a film. And so we were kind of excited the fact by the fact that, you know, people then latched on and really liked it as well. The Lego Batman movie, we sort of went in obviously with expectations already set high because <laughs> it was a spin-off from a film that everybody loved, um, which meant we sort of felt like we had to work harder and try kind of come up with ways that made it its own film. And again, we're pleasantly surprised that people seem to like it. The Lego movies have brought a lot of enjoyment to my family. Both me and my boys love them. Hopefully you can keep on evolving them. So when I have to go to the movies with them, I get enjoyment too. And it's not a typical sequel, which sort of goes downhill, sort of like Police Academy. Yeah, and, and that was deliberate. You know, we wanted it to feel like another film and we made choices that, that tried to make it feel like it wasn't just a knockoff, <laughs> for lack of a better word. It wanted it to feel like it was it's, its own unique film. In my mind, the original Lego movie will go down like one of those classic movies from the 80s, like sort of Goonies or The Dark Crystal or or in the 90s, Toy Story, the people remember as like a classic film. It was such a different approach to stop animation and people love Lego and I think that that combination sort of really hits the spot. I imagine my eight-year-old will think back when he's in his 20s as that's a classic movie. As one of those films, that's fantastic. The best thing with the Lego movie was we were forwarded emails from people who described how they had two autistic children that didn't get along, but now the Lego movie is the one thing that allows them to play together. <laughs> so and you hear these like really wonderful stories where you're like, oh, you know, all that hard work actually has the ability to change the world, in, you know, even if it's in small ways. So let's move into the final section now. I'd like to find out more about where you get inspiration from. Yeah, I used to be completely all about looking at other artists, concept artists I liked and so on. And I found lately I tend to find inspiration more in just the real world and and things around me than looking at, at concept art on art station or whatever. Walk my dogs in the bush with my partner and just sort of zone out and, you know, enjoy nature. I enjoy watching movies. I still watch a lot of films, but, you know, trying to find older films or, or films that I haven't seen before and be inspired by those more so than running out and watching Geostorm, you know, with, a, with an entire city getting destroyed again, which, you know, at one point in time would have been the most exciting thing that I could have seen. These days I like prefer to watch an Alexander Payne film or something where I can understand human psychology and get an insight into the way people work. Because ultimately that's sort of why we tell stories and why we make movies is to sort of give us insight into our own lives and our own existences. So there's only so many times you can like render an alien invasion and make that um, be emotionally satisfying. And, and so that's kind of where I find inspiration these days is, is from, from films and books in the real world more so than looking at the latest Art of book. So have you been watching any of the classic TV that's been made at the moment? Yeah, but not as, not as heavily as I probably should for some of <laughs> role. Like, yeah, I, I watch... I'm perpetually one season behind on Game of Thrones, for example. So, like, I, I'm only up to the bit where, like, Jon Snow may or may not be dead. Um, Would you like an insight on that? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm pretty certain I know what the what he is, but based on spoilers from the, the latest season. But, yeah, you know, I, I slowly have taken up Netflix. 
um, TV shows. So I'm only now just watching like Orange is the New Black. Oh, don't do it. Because <laughs> my partner started watching it. And Rick and Morty. I watch a lot of Rick and Morty. There's a show on Netflix I'm into at the moment called Mindhunter. It's pretty cool. It's worth a look. Oh, cool. It's it's, it's sort of like Mad Men, but about serial killers. Oh, really crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's a period piece in the 70s. Oh, nice. Oh, 70s, 70s is a huge influence, by the way. Lego, Lego Batman, uh, the art direction of that was hinging a lot off of films from the 70s that I like. So, you know, there's Taxi Driver references and other films like that are the reference in Lego Batman movie. So do you do any passion projects outside Animal Logic? I used to draw a lot, and I remember when I first started working at Animal, somebody said, so you're going to draw, you know, outside of work? And I'm like, yeah. Um, and then, like, as soon as I started doing it full-time, it sort of has petered off a, a lot more. But I, I actually kind of enjoy writing a little bit, and so, you know, I'll sit there and write ideas down and, and you know, have half-complete treatments and sort of for ideas that, you know, may serve me well, you know, in the future if I ever, you know, get out of the world of production design and into directing or, or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's where my passion projects are right now. But often, like these days, because you're working, you know, up to you know, 10 to 12-hour days uh, when you're on uh, at the height of a project, your, your passion project at home is sleeping um, often or, or just watching TV or, or, you know, as I said, spending time where I can just go and walk in the bush or walk down a down the beach with uh, with my dogs. So to finish up, is there anything that you're not doing now that you'd like to do in the future? There's a lot of focus on creating what they call four quadrant films, which is like you know films that lots of people see. And the thing that I think I'd love to work on is not necessarily a film that's designed for millions of people, but a film that you know is really really good. <laughs> you know, which is which. Luckily, with the Lego films, we kind of have, have gotten both, which is great. You know, if I watch something like Song of the Sea, I don't know if you've seen that animated film, you know, where it's, you know, it hasn't made a billion dollars around the world and, and not many people have necessarily seen it, but it's great, you know, and it, and it speaks to me. The fantasy is always to be able to work on those films, which is why, you know, there's always that that push and pull in the world of cinema between, you know, that idea of Hollywood versus indie, where Hollywood mainstream studio films are about making a lot of money and pleasing as many people as possible. Um, and indie films are about creating art and you know sometimes you want to create art and you you have to in order to make a living make the the hollywood version but the best place you can be and where i've been very lucky to be at on the last few films is sort of somewhere in between where it's both a challenging interesting film that is sort of you know thematically interesting and creatively interesting but also popular entertainment that seems like a good place to finish up well that's it sweet All right, thanks very much for spending time and sharing your thoughts and your stories with us. I've really enjoyed it. No worries. It was fun. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can follow us on Instagram and you can check us out on Facebook. You can find out more about Grant and Animal Logic at animallogic.com. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.